Welcome to episode 33 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the companion podcast to Calvary's Read the Whole Bible in a Year plan. Our readings for the coming week come mostly from Jeremiah and Ezekiel, with just a little bit from Kings and Chronicles. And those readings, the Kings and Chronicles readings, just tell the story of how Zedekiah, Jehoiachin's uncle, um, is set up as king by Babylon after Jehoiachin is taken into exile, and Zedekiah does evil. He does not, Chronicles actually says he does not humble himself in the sight of Jeremiah, which is an interesting break from the usual formula there. Our Jeremiah readings come mostly from the time of the reign of Zedekiah. We hear about Jeremiah being arrested, about Zedekiah seeking his help and even offering to protect him. And we hear about why Jeremiah was so hated. He insisted that what Yahweh wanted was for the Israelites to submit to Babylon. And the others saw that as treason. We also read about, in our Jeremiah passages, what is probably his most famous enacted sermon, when he puts a crossbar across his shoulders and indicates that this is the fate of the kings who resist Babylon, because Babylon has been chosen by Yahweh to do what it is doing in this time. And we read about Jeremiah's confrontation with the false prophet Hananiah, which ends with Hananiah's death. In Jeremiah, we see that those who were not taken by Babylon are still not doing well with their commitment to Yahweh, and that even greater judgment is still to come. So a lot of these chapters from Jeremiah is literally doom and gloom, you know, and and kind of sentences of national death. Uh, But one of the uplifting, quote-unquote, or or, uh, encouraging parts comes at the end of chapter 31, where Jeremiah starts talking about something called the New Covenant. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, and you can correct me, but I don't know if we've seen that phrase yet exactly in the Bible. Is Jeremiah the first one to I f- start talking mm-hmm. about it? Because I don't think Isaiah does. Uh, and of course, that's obviously made much of in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews, I know, especially quotes from this passage of Jeremiah pretty extensively. So I think it'd be good if you could just, since it's the first time, kind of the and. I think the underlying ideas have been present for most of yes. the story and of the Bible that's what thus I'm far. Thinking, yeah. But just in terms of kind of crystallizing it, like we saw with Isaiah, phrases like new creation, good news, you know, these other things that are he's he's kind of pulling these things together into the light so that they become a a uh, formal concept, I guess, rather than just kind of a scattered set of ideas. Yeah, like so what is what is Jeremiah conceiving of or what is he seeing as he's describing this new covenant? So the first covenant with between Israel and Yahweh was it's part of the Torah the book of Deuteronomy can really be seen as the book of the the covenant where the covenant is described and in it are all these promises Yahweh makes to Israel if they will obey and all these punishments if they will disobey and their faithfulness is one of the requirements of the covenant, and they do not keep it. And over and over and over again, they break the covenant. What I think Jeremiah is seeing is a future where the, this covenant that they have lived in the midst of is no longer the covenant between God and his people. I don't think it's really clear at this point if Yahweh will consider it broken and, and done, or if he will fulfill it in some way. But it is just gone. It is, it is as though Yahweh has married this people. There will be a divorce or an ending of that marriage. And then a remarriage of some kind will happen. And the new covenant will have different 
rules to it. It will look different. We don't have a lot of detail from Jeremiah at this point, but we have, I want to not mix up Jeremiah and um, Ezekiel because they both talk about this, but there will be a, um, an emphasis about the heart in the new covenant. His people will know Yahweh. They will know him. They will be able to know him personally. Um, and the law is going to be written not on stone tablets, but on their hearts. And that is, uh, that is coming at the same time as an emphasis on individual repentance and sin is also being discussed both in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. These passages are linked mm-hmm. to a emphasis on the individual rather than on the collective. And so it seems also that this new covenant is going to be not about a nation to God, but about each person and their connection to Yahweh. And I think that those are, at this point, pretty much all we have. It's a hope that though they've broken the covenant, that is not the end. Mm -hmm. And that what is coming is even better than anything that's happened before. But that also a a real end, a real transition is happening. Yeah. Like it's not, it won't just be a a carrying over of of the same thing. And we see that especially in Ezekiel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And Jeremiah uses, yeah, that sort of language that the law, the Torah will be written on your heart or on our hearts. What... Like, what does he mean by that? Hmm. Because, you know, any of them who knew the Torah, and we've talked about this before, right? It's not like they all had their own personal Bibles. Like, there would have been a few scrolls locked away in the temple. Like, it wasn't like... So, I mean, in terms of... Because it almost sounds like memorization. But it's like, well, most people had a lot of it memorized already. So, it can't be that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it can't be that if it's if it's a new thing. So, like, what... Yeah, just what is that... And yes, it is connected. And I was going to ask about kind of the heart, the new heart language in Ezekiel as well. But just what, yeah, what are they, what is he trying to describe? Yeah, it's a great, great question. I think that one of the things we have to be careful here is about here is there is a, a tendency among evangelicals to see the Old Testament as this terrible, the old covenant is just a terrible burden that was like a yoke that was placed on God's people Mm -hmm. that was impossible to fulfill. And they lived with that impossibility on a daily basis, knowing that they could never do what Yahweh had asked them to do. And that the, 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 the promise of animal sacrifices was seen as this awful burdensome practice that was needed for Yahweh's forgiveness. The people inside of the covenant, the faithful ones, did not see it as a burden. In fact, we we think about all these laws in the Old Testament. There are more commands in the new than there are in the old in like a third of the, the space. But the old covenant does have its basis as what was written on tablets, right? So on Mount Sinai, Moses is given two tablets with the Ten Commandments. And that is seen as the kind of the basis and beginning of the Old Covenant. And I think what Jeremiah is referring to here is that this isn't going to be based on the laws that were written down a long time ago. This is going to be based on something different that I'm doing, going to do and change within people. And so there's something about the, again, individualized aspect of this, of each person to Yahweh. Because he goes on to say, People aren't going to have to teach each other about who the Lord is. Everyone is just going to know. Now, I think that's poetic, right? We're in the new covenant and we certainly do need to be taught about who who Yahweh is. 
but it's this idea, again, that it's not a, a national thing responding to Yahweh, but a personal thing responding to Yahweh. And something that was already present was the need of the, the worshiper's heart to respond to Yahweh, right? Faithfulness was not just a matter of external faithfulness. We see that, for example, in Jonah, Jonah chapter 2. He's in the belly of the whale. And it's his repentance that works as a sacrifice that brings him forgiveness. Not, it's his personal heart disposition towards Yahweh that Yahweh cared about. We see that with David. Yahweh cares about the heart, not about these other things. But it seems like that, while present in the Old Covenant, will be the primary part of the New Covenant, is the people's heart in response to Yahweh. I mean, I think it's a, something that the church has thought a lot about, mm-hmm. you know, and then, I mean, it gets into how how do we read the Old Testament laws now and, you know, and just all, it kind of spider cracks out into all these other Absolutely. kind of issues and, um, you know. Yeah, I think that that's true is that it leaves us with a lot of questions on our, we'll, we'll talk about this more when we get to the New Testament, which we are both, I think, chomping at the bit to do. But the, the question of how we handle the Old Testament is is a big part of what happens. Like the question a new covenant worshiper has to, or follower of Yahweh has to right. ask themselves. Yeah, I think maybe the only thing I would add is just that this sense of, you know, so I think I think my translation said the law will be written on your heart. But I mean, the word is the Torah, which includes laws, but is more than that. So I think it's it's put in their minds and written on their hearts. Yeah. Well, so just to say that, you know, for the for the ancient Israelites, I mean, the idea of Torah is, is I think, further away from our conception of the law and closer to, like, teaching or instruction, mm-hmm. you know, and so I think that in some ways, like, I guess I read this as, I mean, again, I'm not disagreeing with anything you said, I think that was all good and all true, but also just as a, a way of talking about, I think, the Holy Spirit's presence mm-hmm. in our hearts or in our, our beings in a new way, um, just because... You know, even within the story of the New Testament, right? So Pentecost, which for the uh, Judean people was the festival celebrating the giving of the law in Sinai. When that comes for Jesus' people, then that's when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. You yes. know, so I mean, there's there seems to be a link, even though it's it's I don't know if it's ever like stated outright, but just this idea that, and I think that makes sense. Just this oh, idea yeah. that the Holy Spirit and the Torah are connected, which. I think is interesting to then kind of think forward into some of Paul's language about the difference between mm-hmm. the letter of the law and the letter of the spirit. But, um, and, and I think that when you, when you get down into the heart of why were all these commandments given, you know, and it, it wasn't just because God wants to be controlling or, or whatever else, uh, rather they're all in service of the creator wanting to dwell with his people, you know, and, and, and his kind of provision for their sinfulness um, and provision for their obedience, you know, which I think obviously the culmination of that, at least in the current time, is the Holy Spirit's indwelling of, of believers yeah. and the church as a whole. But Yeah, Acts 2 definitely changes the way we read these passages. And I think that when we get there, we'll be talking about this again. This was predicted. I don't think Jeremiah had a sense of the Holy Spirit indwelling the hearts of people. I, I don't know that he knew what this meant. Mm-hmm. He just knew that there would be a personal deep connection between Yahweh's people and him in a way that there hasn't been yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So throughout these chapters and, and our very brief readings from Kings and Chronicles, like <laughs> Judea is 
teetering on the brink yes. of total destruction. I think maybe we'll finally get there next week mm-hmm. with the destruction of the temple and everything else. Uh, and it's interesting to me, kind of just dramatically, and I, I don't think the reading plan did this intentionally. I think they're just trying to track you know, things chron- chronologically, but like time in some ways narrative time it's seems to have slowed down. way down <laughs> as we get close but it's like if this were a movie you know or a miniseries like i feel like that would be kind of the way it would be right mm-hmm. it's like the building tension of like the disaster is almost here and we keep inching it's closer and closer yeah. to it but in uh 37 and 38 especially like jeremiah oh, is yeah. is persecuted imprisoned thrown into a cistern and then rescue from the cistern. Um, and I just, this is kind of a more general question and, and you can take it however you want to take it. But one of the things that I've been thinking about is just generally in my life and in faith and everything else is, you know, that, that there always seems to be an, this may just be the state of humankind. Like there's always some big problem out there that everyone is maybe not worried about, but that kind of dominates the the culture of the day of like, oh no, you know, like this thing might happen. You know, for us, we talk about nuclear war or climate change. You know, I feel like the, the big ones. Aliens, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> we'll see where that one takes us. Listeners, tell us if you want to do a segment on whether uh, our faith is conducive to the prospect of aliens. I mean, Ezekiel looked up and saw something strange in yes, the sky. Yes, he did. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, but anyway, and, and just this, I think because our culture is so wealthy, and I know we don't all individually feel wealthy, but like... Our techno, our technology, our the amenities that we enjoy, like we're just so, it's just been so good for so long that like none of us, at least I think in America, kind of have any kind of a concept of like, I guess when a natural disaster happens is maybe the closest we come when your home's destroyed or something like that, which is real and significant. But I don't know, just this idea of like <laughs> that the world has ended, so to speak, many times for many people. And not that, like, and it was fine. That's not what I'm trying to say. But, like, we, I guess I'm, it's almost like there are bigger things than just the end of the world. Because, <laughs> like, Jeremiah's world is about to end. Like, for all of them, all of their world. And, and I think you read this, and it's like a disaster movie. Like, when things are falling apart and the civil authorities and things are, you know, like in the zombie apocalypse movie, right, where the cop is also uh, looting, you know, the Mm -hmm. grocery store. I mean, it's just like things are breaking down. The end is near. Yeah. And just if you have any thoughts about, like, what, and I'm not saying we're inches away from disaster, but uh, just to say that people have faced great grave threats and different things and looming disasters many, many times throughout human history, so just thinking about Jeremiah, are there any sort of lessons that we can take from him in terms of like being faithful in the face of potential disaster, doom? One of the the things that's important about whether it be grief and loss or impending doom is that these things should be thought about before they happen. Trying mm. to figure out the righteous way to respond with no pre-thought is the wrong approach. We should grapple with and prepare ourselves for what if everything just ends? What if the rug gets pulled out from under us? And I, I think I see in Jeremiah a unyielding commitment to an unpopular message that happens to be the message of, of Yahweh. And it's a message of submission. And I mean, you think about how Jeremiah is in in 
close proximity to a whole lot of people that have the power to hurt or kill him. We actually see him, like I said, thrown into a cistern and and left there with the thought of that he'll starve to death eventually. Now he's rescued, but those had to be long days. Um, observing your own starvation would be about the most miserable a human being could get. And the the as soon as he's pulled out, I mean, it he doesn't he doesn't stop saying what he's been told by Yahweh to say. This isn't right. just Jeremiah's observations of the political landscape right. and thinking the right thing for God's people to do is to let their land be taken from them. Yahweh has told him that they are to submit to Babylon because he's using Babylon right now. And I think that what we learn from that is the temptations to let go of God's truth and our own commitments to righteousness are strongest when the most pressure is being applied. Pressure from all the people around us telling us they want to hear us do and say something different. Pressure from people who are in the midst of grief needing you to say encouraging, hopeful things that that may not be what Yahweh has told us to do. Mm-hmm. You know, the person who is stuck in a sinful lifestyle, who's desperate for affirmation that it's okay to to do this thing that Yahweh has said not to do, whether it be cheating on a spouse or whatever the case may be, still we're to be committed to the truth and and to tell the truth. And Jeremiah is not awful about it. There's a way to tell the tru- truth terribly. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeremiah doesn't seem to be that kind of a terrible teller of truth. He mm-hmm. just tells the truth and does the things Yahweh tells him to do. And so if you can find a way to be righteous and good and at the same time not cruel, I think that that's, that's what Jeremiah tells us to do, is to hold, hold tight to God's truth and to do so without cruelty. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, uh, <clears throat> that, was all, that was all good. I think something else I was thinking about as I was just considering that question is that Jeremiah does not seem super concerned with his own well-being. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. I mean, nobody wants to starve to death at the bottom of an empty cistern, but I mean, he just does not seem that concerned. Uh, And so, I mean, he leaves the city at some point during, while, I don't think it's during the actual siege, but while the Babylonians are running about the countryside somewhere, like he tries to go back to his hometown and he's, he's apprehended. And, and so, yeah, it just seems like thinking, thinking about us and, you know, in whatever situations and things we may face as people of faith, right? It's like, we know that this world is not the ultimate reality. We know that our own personal death is not the end of our story. And so that should hopefully mean, you know, that we can, no matter what the situation is that we're facing, you know, can act in ways that, that help and serve others, even up to and including, you know, uh, giving up our own lives for, for the sake of others. And I mean, that's sobering and, you know, I, uh, yeah, but I just, I was struck by that. of just like, yeah, he's just, he's just there kind of along for the ride and doesn't seem too bent out of shape, <laughs> you know, or, or at least I should say, I shouldn't say that he is bent out of shape, yes, he's he the <laughs> but he doesn't try and avoid anything. No. Like he doesn't run and hide. He, he doesn't, it. you know, he just, he's just there doing what he feels, you know, and, and I think rightly so what, what God has called him to do. Well, I think, I think he's showing what Yahweh said he would be made into. Didn't he, didn't Yahweh say he was going to make him into a strong tower? 
Yeah, I think that's right. And that that you you see that and he does. Yeah. yeah. In some of these later chapters, fifty one especially, Jeremiah just, uh, prophesies about the destruction of Babylon, and there are some phrases that he that he uh, has here that that the revelation, like John's revelation, lifts almost verbatim, talking about Babylon many centuries later. And of course, John isn't actually talking about Babylon when he's right. talking about Babylon. And I think a week or two ago, we talked a little bit about Babylon, but I just wanted you to, to uh, kind of give us a big picture, maybe view of like the motif of Babylon, because we see it throughout the Bible. I mean, yeah. it starts with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, goes like we were just saying all the way through to the end of Revelation. Sometimes the biblical text is talking about the actual city of Babylon, but often it's used as a symbol. And so, I, yeah, I think I just wanted you to speak into kind of what the symbolism wow. of yeah. Babylon is. So in some ways, it's surprising that it is Babylon and not Nineveh that is the, yeah. the focus. Because Nineveh was wicked in a different way. Um, Nineveh was... I mean, the, the Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh was the capital, was more brutal than the Babylonian Empire. But what they didn't do that Babylon does is they didn't glory in the same way in the same kind of wickedness. In other words, Babylon became a seat for a unique kind of idolatry that is, I think, what makes it the symbol city for wickedness in the Bible. The, we've seen it before, the, the magics of, um, that have been talked about that are kind of part of Babylonian culture are this idea that rather than submitting to the wills of a god, whichever god it may be, the Babylonians really grabbed onto this idea that human beings could control what was going on in the supernatural realm. And there is a, a fundamental shift that happens when a person goes from even, even the evil of worshiping another god to believing somehow that they will have power themselves over the supernatural realm. I mean, that's really a picture of what Lucifer does in the fall in heaven. He looks at God and says, I can, I can do what I want and he can't stop me which is crazy. The most powerful being ever created looked at Yahweh and somehow thought, I can take him. Um, but the, the, the humans in Babylon, the culture had kind of, with all their success that they experienced, and they really did experience tremendous success. They just won every fight they got into after a certain point. Um, now, they didn't last a really long time, but man, for that period of time, they were unstoppable. And they came to believe not only that their whims and desires were good and right because they were their whims and desires, it didn't, they didn't even need to find a God that would tell them it was okay. Hmm. They came to believe that they really were the ones running the show. And so that, that element, that change, I think, from any other culture, any other time, any of the other oppressors in the Bible— makes Babylon the picture of human wickedness that's used from the, the beginning of the Bible story all the way through the end. Because in it, we see a picture not only of idolatry, not only of a rejection of Yahweh, not only of oppression and, and bringing disaster upon other people, 
but also we see in them this kernel of an idea that actually it's human beings who are the greatest thing in existence. They still believed in gods, right? They still had a pantheon and they still worshipped. But in Babylon came the concept that we can make them do what we want. We can make the spirits, make the gods obey. And that, that pride, which is, I think, the worst thing in the human heart, is, I think, the picture of why Babylon became the symbol for human wickedness used throughout the Bible. And Babylon is also the nation that takes mm-hmm. uh, Judah away, right? It is the, the, the one that destroys the, the, the temple. And that temple is, is not, just, not just the seat of the Israelite religion. It is also a deep and powerful symbol of Yahweh's covenant with his people, his presence with his people, his protection of his people. And Babylon is the human kingdom that is coming to take it away. And I think that will sit in the consciousness of the Israelite people in a way that nothing Nineveh did ever could. Mm-hmm. Um, Babylon is the ones who will carry them into exile and, and not the ones who will allow them to return. You know, that's Persia. And so I would say that that's also a piece of this, is that greater wickedness was enacted upon God's people by Babylon than any other nation as well. Ezekiel is such a good book. It's just a really weird book. Um, one of the things I like about Ezekiel is all these all these chronological problems we have with Jeremiah trying to figure out what goes when are not present. You can read Ezekiel from beginning to end. It seems like he sat and wrote in spurts and kept them chronologically as he went. So Ezekiel was a priest who was taken captive in 597 B.C., when the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, captured Jerusalem after a brief siege. When the young king Jehoiachin and all the others, described in 2 Kings 24, uh, when they were removed from they were removed from the temple. And for Ezekiel, that should have been his life, a life in the temple. Instead, he was resettled on the dusty plains of Babylonia. And in the fifth year of his exile, in 593 BC, The call of God comes to him to exercise a prophetic ministry to the house of Israel. Now, Ezekiel was a young man when the exile began, which is why his ministry lasted for so long. His last oracle is in the 27th year of the exile, which would make him about 52. So he's 30 at the beginning and about 52 at the end. Now, sadly, we don't know anything about Ezekiel outside of the book which bears his name. But in it, we discover that he was married and that his wife died when Jerusalem fell in 587 and that he had considerable influence because he was repeatedly consulted by elders among the exiles. Much of his early prophetic ministry concerns the wickedness of those who were still in Jerusalem, and it seems to indicate that the future of God's people will rest with the exiles and not with those left behind. We see this from the very beginning where Ezekiel refuses to acknowledge Zedekiah is king. Despite the exile and Jehoiachin being taken away, still Ezekiel refers to Jehoiachin as king. And that seems to give an indication that he expects that that means that Jehoiachin will one day return or symbolizes that the king will one day return. It is interesting that Ezekiel and Jeremiah never acknowledge one another, even though they were contemporaries. 
They were living far apart, which I think explains that silence. But they deal with a lot of the same themes. They both interact with the same saying about fathers eating sour grapes. They both em emphasize the principle of individual judgment and individual repentance. And they both speak about a new covenant which Yahweh would make with his people. Ezekiel is a watchman, which is language that he picks up from Habakkuk. And it's, it shows that he believes himself his sending as a prophet to talk about the doom um, to warn the exiles of their impending doom was an act of grace on God's part. Watchmen was a common term for true prophets of Yahweh. Their function was to be alert to the situation around them, to hear the word of God whenever it came to them, and to speak it accurately to the people. We, brothers and sisters, I think are supposed to follow him in that calling. Yeah, it's worth emphasizing that Ezekiel's already in Babylon. Yes. He's already in, I mean, we, we referenced this a few times, there wasn't just a single taking of people from Jerusalem. There were several over the course of 10 or 15 years. And so Ezekiel was uh, deported to Babylon uh, several years before the actual destruction of the temple and kind yeah. of the end of the Judean state. And it seems like he would have been about 24, 25, which would have been at the very beginning of his priestly ministry at the temple. He probably would have served as a priest, just very little. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel's uh, book starts with this <laughs> there's just so much crazy in here <laughs> of a pyrotechnic vision of uh -huh. the glory of god and the presence of god and i'd like you to <laughs> just tell us about what he sees and and what uh what if anything were to make of it yeah so uh, so we learn more about what he sees as his book goes on at the beginning, what we have from Ezekiel is a picture of a storm cloud coming. And in the storm cloud, he sees the chariot of Yahweh. And the chariot has a lot of features that are just fascinating. Um, one of them is that the, the throne of Yahweh on the chariot is actually borne by these living creatures. And these creatures have four faces. There's a human face and an ox face, and a lion face, and what's the fourth one? An eagle. An eagle's face. And the the and they have wings as well, with with which they, they use to fly and to cover their bodies, bringing us back to Isaiah 6. And then next to these, these beasts are these wheels, and the wheels are not normal wheels, right? You can picture a chariot wheel with spokes and everything, but they're, there's, they're wheels within wheels, so wheels moving in like bisecting one another. Mm -hmm. In other words, I mean, this couldn't be made really by the way that Ezekiel visualizes it. Yahweh could do it, of course. But there are wheels that allow him to move in any direction, which is just something that chariots could not do at that time. And so it's a living, it's a chariot made up of wheels that can move in any direction, living beings holding up Yahweh's throne, which we find out later is made of sapphire, which is a striking image. And the, the creatures at this point seem to be symbolizing all of creation, right? The created, the created world. We find out later that they are cherubim, they're angels. But at this point, it seems like they're just spiritual beings who symbolize all of creation. In other words, Yahweh is showing his lordship over the world by the very nature of this chariot, which he reveals to Ezekiel. And then Ezekiel gets this call. To ministry, um, which is 
amazing because it comes directly from the glory of the Lord. And the call involves this promise to, um, or this, this commandment to Ezekiel to speak God's words to his people. Um, he tells them, he tells them, you're going to have a rough ministry. People aren't going to like hearing it, but I've got, I've got things that you need to say to people. And by the way, if you don't say them to people and the people, because they don't know them, do bad and die, their blood's on your hands. So like, I'm making you personally responsible for all the bad things that happen because you don't say what I've told you to say. And then he gives a picture to Ezekiel or, a, a, I don't know, a, um, a lived out part of this calling, which is actually the namesake for this podcast, where he gives him a scroll to eat. And he tells him it will taste sweet in his mouth, but will turn sour in his stomach, which is, there's a depth to that symbolism that I think would take us a long time to discuss. And then Ezekiel begins this ministry. I mean, that was, read it. If, if you're listening to the podcast and, and you skip around or something, please don't skip Ezekiel. Everybody seems to skip Ezekiel because he's the weird prophet. But my gosh, his book is uh, a good read. It's, it's, after Jeremiah, it's not hard because it's not broken up in chronologically. It's just a, a wild ride. The craziest living sermon, I think, of any of the prophets. That he builds a little miniature. Well, that's step one. He builds a <laughs> little Jerusalem and then like, like a toddler with a tower that they've made, stands over it and, and, a, and, a, and sieges it. And then, and then he's to lay on his side for 390 days, one day for each year of Israel's wickedness, and then roll over for 40 days on his other side for each year of Judah's wickedness. And he's, because he's laying on his side, like, I mean, hear me, listener, he's not laying on his side and doing nothing else, right? But when he has to go to the bathroom, it seems like Yahweh built in a way for him to deal with the, the, the waste. He was supposed to cook his food over his own poop. Um, and when he says, please, Yahweh, no, Yahweh says, okay, you can use cow manure. So we can assume that Ezekiel is getting up and going to the bathroom somewhere, or I hope this wasn't the case, getting someone to carry him to go to the bathroom somewhere. But let's, let's assume Yahweh doesn't mean you are never allowed to move for 390 days. Cause if he did, he would have to supernaturally sustain him. Cause I think that would kill you. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. And so... He, he does this as a, a, a way of displaying the burden of Israel and Judah's sin and the, the consequence of the exile. Like cooking over poop is a symbol of the, the profane food they're going to have to eat in the exile. It's just, it's nuts. And if you can imagine being one of the people, Ezekiel comes in and he says, all right, everybody, I just saw Yahweh on a chariot in a thundercloud and describes the, the beasts. And then he gave me a scroll to eat. And now I'm supposed to lay on my side and cook my food over poop for a year and a half. I mean, it's amazing people didn't just assume he was totally insane. Like, he, well, he has a lot of influence over the exiles. Do the elders come and visit him before Jerusalem is destroyed? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I can't remember the chronology. Because I was going to say, I wouldn't be surprised if it takes the, the news that the temple had actually fallen. And then they're like, oh, I guess... I guess the poop guy isn't so crazy. <laughs> Chapter 8 does happen before uh, before the fall of Jerusalem, I think. Yeah. Anyways, sorry about that. I just, we had to, holy smokes. And so you mentioned Chapter 5? 
Well, and I, I think another, I'm, I'm glad that you, uh, you took us there. Cause I think the other part of that too is I, I'm trying to think if I've ever burned, uh, feces, but I would imagine that that stank. And I mean, their whole world stank back then because yes. people didn't wash like we did and there were animals everywhere. And, you know, I mean, so it, it would have, their just normal daily life would have reeked to us disgustingly. <laughs> But I feel like burning, you know, at least once a day, if not several times a day, burning manure would have, I mean, if Ezekiel's at home, then no one could probably have been at home with him, you know, or wouldn't have wanted to come inside. If he's out on the street, which I imagine, I just personally imagine he's he's almost akin to like a street performer, not as frivolous as that, but I mean, he's laying on his side in view of the people next to his little model of Jerusalem, you know. So if that means he's burning this stuff, I mean, it's just the whole neighborhood knows, you know. Yes. <laughs> like you can't. And just but just in terms of that, I think symbolizing his 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 word really against the people, you know, it's just like that they cannot escape the funk, you know, of this judgment. Like and there's just no escape from it. This would have wrecked his health and he would not have appeared like a healthy person. And now he's eating food cooked over it. So it's not even it's not even just outside of him. The the corruption of it is inside his body. Ezekiel probably looked like a wasted shell of a man at the end of this, and he's about thirty, so he's he's a young man, and this is um this probably very nearly killed him. I think Yahweh must have while he's laying on one side, Yahweh must have sustained his life. But this was a miserable four hundred and thirty days. But even, and, and, and I mean, this that would have been awful and miserable for anyone, but then also just, again, to consider that he was a Levite, you know, and how, how stringent they were supposed to be about cleanliness and, and all that. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a provocative image mm-hmm. still, you know, just us sitting and just imagining it, you know, of just the people's guilt and just the heinousness of their, their filthiness uh, is... I mean, it's hard. It's hard for us to even conceive, but I think that's. I mean, that's kind of the the point Ezekiel is trying to make, you know, with all of it. Of just, it's just hard to conceive of how how they could have gone so far astray. Mm-hmm. Well, and kind of speaking with that, so in chapters five and six and and seven, uh, you know, he's describing this coming judgment. Something that I was struck by, and and you can you can uh, comment on it if you want, or we could just move on. But just just that these these plagues, the plagues and things that he's he's describing i mean a lot of it is pulled from deuteronomy and yahweh says if you transgress or really when you transgress the covenant like these are the the penalties that are going to happen and i think even back in the torah like we can definitely see a parallel between like the plagues of egypt and what will be unleashed on on the people and it just struck me and i and this might be an obvious thought that other people have had before but i just it was just a fresh realization of just that the exile is truly like the inversion of the exodus you know that they that it's not the evil empire getting punished with the plagues it's god's oh, own people yeah. and then god is more or less leading his people not to salvation in their own land yeah. but actually away and back into the belly of the beast that's right you know and and not even just Egypt, because Egypt isn't Egypt isn't the paragon of human arrogance power. Oh. Babylon is, you know, and so it was just like, wow, like that's that's uh, I mean, just put into perspective, I think, again, just the depth of of these things and 
Yeah, yeah. That's, I've never had that thought before, and I think you're exactly right. He leads them out of the evil empire of death, and then because of their wickedness, he puts them right he back in it. puts them right back in it. Oh. <laughs> and I think in some ways that also sets us up more and more. I think because Christians, we tend not to read the narratives of the Bible much past like David and Saul. So when it comes to Jesus, I think the exile is less in our minds when we're thinking about oh, the ministry of Jesus. The, um, but it is right at the front of the of the minds of the people who wrote the Gospels and the people who directly encountered yeah. Jesus in those days. And I think this is one of those thoughts that, that I think really sets us up to, to appreciate that more is that, you know, God, because obviously, and we'll talk about this, that God will bring the people back out of exile again. But that by the time of Jesus, I mean, people were very aware that 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 work remained unfinished, you know, like they were back in the land, but so much was still mm-hmm. lost to them, you know, so that Jesus is is a restorer from exile. But by then himself going into the, the exile of death. Um, and the, the other thing about this is we read these punishments and they're harsh. And as I read them, I'm sure that I have the same reaction many of us do. Like, how could Yahweh, who loves his people, do this? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's it's harsh. I mean, he talks at one point about things becoming so bad that fathers and sons are going to eat one another. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the thing that is uncomfortable but true is that when we get to the New Testament, we don't have a Jewish people caught up in idolatry any longer. Right. The, the Jewish people are, are loyal to Yahweh and loyal, apparently, only to Yahweh. There's mm-hmm. not a, a lot of this wicked idolatry that was no, part of their worship not is a, not there. A hint, yeah. And so it worked. Like this, this did purify God's people and bring them back to a place where they were worshiping Yahweh and Yahweh only again. And that, I mean, we're going to read about the stories that are coming up. And yes, and of course they're... <laughs> I say Yahweh and Yahweh only. They weren't perfect by any means. No. If they were perfect, that anyways. But the the purifying the uh, of the idolatry did occur mm-hmm. um, when the when the exiles came back. They were a people that imperfectly truly did follow Yahweh. Mm-hmm. But Ezekiel takes kind of a virtual trip to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, uh-huh. virtual meaning he. Yes. In the spirit went there, but or maybe we think he physically was teleported. I don't know. Well, I mean, he prophesied to them. So uh, whether they heard <laughs> him preach the true. sermon or know. not, that's a question. So he took some kind of a journey to Jerusalem and he sees many things. And one of the things mm. he sees is that God, uh, I don't think the text actually says it's an angel, but a man in white uh, with a uh, uh, basically like a mobile writing desk, like some kind of a heavenly scribe whose job it is, is to mark the good Israelites to spare them from the coming destruction. And I just thought you could maybe talk a little bit about like, have we seen that sort of a symbolism before? Like, what does that mean? Obviously it's, it's the beginning of a, of an idea that the new Testament, again, the book of revelation quite powerfully kind of expands upon this idea of being marked uh, either by God or, or by the dominion of darkness. Yeah, so that mark is um, a, a important idea throughout the Bible, as you said. We see the first picture of this with the lamb's blood over mm-hmm. the, the doorposts in Exodus. Um, the, the idea being here that the righteous are marked and, and because of that mark are protected. 
that will that story that idea will carry through right even though we don't have a a visible mark on us there will be a uh, i mean we are indwelt by the spirit and that in a sense marks us in a, in the in this way of course in revelation the mark will be the opposite it'll be the mark of the beast um, which is a copy of of this idea but one of the really cool pieces of this in the the church fathers picked up on this and ran with it a lot is that the mark is a tau, which is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, like the, like Z is for us. And tau was made by, I mean, it's the symbol of the cross. And so all of these people are marked with a cross. And at the time, that would not have struck them as um, being particularly meaningful. But it, it is a little meaningful for us on this side of it. Now, whether or not Yahweh was was telling, you know, there will come a day when God's people are marked and saved by the work I'm going to do on the cross is, is a fair question. But it is a little odd that it would so clearly be the only letter of the Hebrew alphabet that looks like a cross that is used to mark safe Yahweh's people. How do we know that it was a Tau? I missed that. It's in the Hebrew. Detail. Oh, okay. It's like mm-hmm. it says. The word mark is Tau. Oh, it's like Tau them. Rather than mark yes, them, I, I think see. so. I think so. Oh, right. But at the end of this this visit to Jerusalem, Ezekiel sees the glory of the chariot leave. Yeah. It departs the temple, uh, and it's kind of this striking, mm. ominous, <laughs> you know, kind of a vision of Yahweh departing. He's done. Yeah, and 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 it just it definitely you know it's kind of like okay, so the way is clear now, you know for Nebuchadnezzar and, and the hordes of Babylon to destroy the city and, and rip the temple down. Is everything else that's happened to Israel and Judah, like they've not been destroyed. Mm-hmm. And Ezekiel predicts the that destruction, not overtly here, in, but covertly in chapter 10 with the spirit leaving the temple. In other words, because all the, all the people are saying, Yahweh's not here. He can't see us. Yahweh's still there. And he says, fine. If you're going to behave the way that you're behaving, I mean, in the temple, they're worshiping nature and the sun and all these idols. They're carving things into the walls that should not be there. Like, I mean, it's just, it's the height of evil happening inside Yahweh's temple. And Yahweh is so disgusted. The equivalent is a husband who's been long suffering with his wife's adultery. And I, I keep using the adultery metaphor because the prophets do. Yeah. And it's not even that she's going out to cheat anymore. You know, in, in the past, she's cheated, come back, repented, gone out. and che- She's now having the lovers in the house. And the husband says, we're done. My forgiveness is exhausted. Um, I am done with you. And, and the ring of his hands. Now, we know that he's not fully done with them. But what he realizes is that his presence has allowed them to the blessings that they have just by him being there has allowed them to fall into this wickedness because they do not really perceive the consequences of their actions. Now, we've said before, it is amazing that Judah lasted as long as it did. In the the world stage, the nations around them did not last like Israel and Judah had. And it's, it's, it's shown that it's because of the presence of Yahweh, because he departs, and it's three years later or so that Jerusalem is completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. And the tragedy of this is hard to really grasp, because later in Ezekiel, we're going to, I'm going to 
talk about a future thing that that we'll get to later. But it's it's just such a sad moment because later in Ezekiel, there'll be a prophecy about the spirit returning, right? The glory of the Lord returning. But it it is not he's not saying it's happened. He's saying that one day it will happen. And we actually think that that's fulfilled with Jesus when he refers to mm-hmm. the temple. But the sad thing here is we read later in the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, they they return and they construct a second temple. And there's a whole, like, the Jewish faith changes a little bit. We get the, upper, like, the coming of rabbis and all of this with this second temple. But one of the things that's tragic is that they knew Yahweh's glory had left mm-hmm. and not yet returned. Not come back. And so they, all this time, the worship that's happening in the temple is the worship of Yahweh in Yahweh's presence. But all of what was happening in Jesus's day and for hundreds of years before that, after the making of that second temple, is this hollow, sad, we're doing our part of the covenant now, Yahweh, please come back. Mm -hmm. And they really did believe and they hoped that perhaps one day he would return and fulfill the promises that he had made. But he, he bore them no more responsibility and they knew it. They had sinned so greatly that Yahweh had left. And so all of their, their coming back into the temple, their acting out of the rituals of the temple is all done knowing that Yahweh is not there. And there's just a deep sadness and depression to that. Um, And that is another part of what strikes us so much that we miss when we read the Gospels. When you read the beginning of Luke, and here comes Zechariah out of the temple, struck dumb. Mm -hmm. The people are seeing a supernatural thing, an evidence of God's presence for the first time in, what, 500 years. That's, I mean, if you could imagine. It's like a bell rang, you know, and just the sound of that echoing across the land. Absolutely. And all these stories then about what's happening at the beginning of the Gospels are this this promise of the return. It's like you said, it's the bell. It's it's ringing the return of of Yahweh to his people. And, And if we don't understand that part of the Jesus story, that he is the return of Yahweh to his people, um, then we miss just so much. And it's Ezekiel 10 that sets us up for that, to see the sad waiting of God's people and then the joy that should have been theirs when he returns. But it also explains why Jesus was so resisted. I mean, they they will not fall into idolatry again. And when people are, when Christians are talking about this man being Yahweh, I mean, you can understand why they're thinking we can't, if we mess up, Yahweh won't ever come back. And it, it, it explains some of their trepidation with, with mm-hmm. Jesus. I wanted you to just comment on Ezekiel 16 because it's oh. a powerful set of images uh, and kind of ties in, like you said, if you, you kind of uh, use the, the marriage motif a couple of times yeah. to describe our relationship with the Lord. Uh, so if you could just, however, whatever, however you want to take it, just comment a bit on Ezekiel 16. So Ezekiel 16 is not a chapter that small children should read. I mean, there is a lot of unfaithfulness in here. And so the story is, as Ezekiel's telling the story of the history of Israel, it's that Yahweh is walking along and sees this helpless little girl on the side of the road. And he takes her in and protects her. And once she is old enough 
to be rightly. And this is sorry. This is just a prophetic parable. Like yes, Ezekiel's not parable. relating something that happened. No, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a prophetic parable. And once she's old enough to be married, he marries her, and he he loves her well. He takes very good care of her. He builds her up, and and is every bit the the husband that you would expect Yahweh to be. And yet she is unfaithful and her unfaithfulness is so much worse than just that, even of Hosea's wife, Gomer, because one of the things it says is that she acted like a prostitute in every way, but one, she refused money and even paid her lovers to come and use her as a prostitute. And the picture of this is Israel's relationship with the idols, with the other gods that they were desperate to worship is that while she's still covenanted to Yahweh, she's pleading with these other gods, gods that, that have no, no, no hope to offer her, no care about her continued existence. If we're right, and we believe these to many of these anyway, to be um, religions that have sprung up around worshiping real spiritual beings, demons and the like, I mean, this is God's chosen covenanted people begging demons to come and and to let her worship them um and you can you can just imagine the utter betrayal of of this just how bad it is that israel has done what it's done because i think we can fall into the trap of thinking that you know sure israel made this covenant with yahweh but like we're big on freedom we're americans right we're big on freedom and and Religious freedom is is a is a deep um, value of ours, and it can seem very harsh that just the desire to worship others would be um, would be met with so much judgment. But this isn't this isn't as though Yahweh is one of many and insisted on him worshiping him and only him. Yahweh is the creator of all of this and the the runner, the ruler of the universe. He covenanted with his people to use them as a light to all the others. And rather than being a light of truth and holiness and goodness and righteousness, they're going into the darkness and asking for those 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 parts of darkness, the the ones who bring darkness to come into them. It's it's a it's a betrayal of the Lord of the universe for permission by other spiritual beings to be unrighteous is basically what this is. They like the things they get to do when they worship these other, these other deities. They like the easy ways that they can hear messages that they want to hear so long as they're not having to listen to an actual prophet of Yahweh. And, and Yahweh is disgusted by it. And it is, a, it is a harsh message of rebuke that Ezekiel gives here. Um, and then he even compares them to some of the other, other nations around Samaria and Sodom. We find out, you know, the, the, the sin of Sodom is, we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but we hear here that it's, it's, it's an, an uncaring for the, the people around them that was truly the core of Sodom's sin. And and Ezekiel, Yahweh through Ezekiel is saying, and they're not as bad as you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about as, as harsh as you can get. Now, it's important to remember that Ezekiel is speaking to the exiles. And so he's speaking in two ways. He's speaking to their people, saying these are the sins we've committed. 
that have resulted in us being in exile. And at other times he's speaking to the, the Israelites that are still left in Jerusalem. But this, this whole diatribe is something that is part of the, the autobiography or the biography of Yahweh's people as a whole. This is an explanation as to why they found themselves in exile. And there is absolutely no one to blame but them. And I think Ezekiel does this in such a way that there's just no denying it. And there's nothing to do other than repent. We said before about Jeremiah being gentle in a lot of ways, not always, but Ezekiel was less gentle, but the deeds have already been done. This isn't a turn back now kind of message. This is a, this is how bad what you did was. And you need to know that because if you can really wrestle with what happened in the past and repent of it, that'll change your future. And we see this with our own relationship with Yahweh. We believe that our sins are forgiven by Yahweh and the Bible tells us he forgets about them. He puts them away. But while we shouldn't be ruled by guilt and shame, it is important for us to, to not forget in the same way Yahweh does because we should never look at ourselves with pride and say, I'm so good, I'm one of Yahweh's people. To remember the past and the evil that he's pulled us out of is something that helps us to strive towards being better in the future. And I think that's what Ezekiel's trying to do in these passages. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.